Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett, uh, one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, thank you uh, for being here and worshiping with us this morning. We're in the middle of a series in the Gospel of Matthew, which is going to take us quite a while to get through. Uh, and so we've broken it up into a number of mini-series, you might say. And so we are just in the middle of a mini-series within the Gospel of Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, which is a very familiar passage for most people uh, if you've been around the church for a while. It's Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God, and so we've been looking there in the Sermon on the Mount. We will look this morning at a couple of passages in different places. First in Matthew 6, verses 9, 9 through 14, which probably uh, is one of the more famous passages in all of the Bible, the Lord's Prayer. And then a parallel passage later in the sermon in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. And you're probably, it's not going to take you too long to figure out what kind of our theme for the service is this morning. So... Uh, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with us, you're welcome to do that. If not, we provide it for you there in the worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me as we read the scriptures together this morning. Uh, so, from the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs his disciples. He says, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives, excuse me, for everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, to them it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask? This is God's Word. Now, we have said over and over again that this sermon that we're looking at here that Jesus teaches is Jesus' vision for the kingdom of heaven. And I, and I use that wording very deliberately because, you see, it's not, Jesus is not giving us rules here, rules to live by. Do these things, you know, and then God will accept you and everything will be great. And he's not giving us, he's not showing us an unattainable ethic that drives us to him necessarily. He is envisioning for us something that we could not envision for ourselves otherwise. And in many ways, he's doing what all good preaching does. He is introducing us to something that is beyond our imaginative powers to even imagine, you know, to even come up with on our own. He's showing us a whole different way of living, a different reality other than the one that we know, called the kingdom of heaven. And in this sermon, he's trying to naturalize us into his kingdom. We're immigrants. That's the kind of the metaphor we've been working with as we've come to this passage, right? Who by believing in Jesus Christ, have become permanent residents of the foreign country of the kingdom of heaven. And just like all immigrants, we have to learn the values and practices that make up the cultural core of that new country that we're a part of. We, in other words, we have to learn a whole new way of life. And at the center, at the very center of what it means to be a kingdom citizen is the spiritual discipline or the spiritual practice of prayer. Now, This makes sense for a couple of reasons. The first is uh, that what Jesus is asking us into, what he's inviting us into, is a relationship with him. And I I was reminded of the way that this even works. 
I was at the grocery store last night and pray for my family. We're at the place where it takes two grocery carts to get everything that I'm buying out to the car. So I'm having a conversation with the, with the little girl that's kind of following me out there and she's telling me about uh, going to church and, and she goes to Faith Baptist Church and said, oh yeah, we know a lot of people there. We have good friends there. Really? So you know our pastor? And I, and I found myself saying, yeah, well, wait, no. I mean, I know his name. I know who he is. I've listened to him preach, but I, I, he wouldn't know me and I don't have a... I don't have a relation, I'm not in a relationship with him. Uh, I'm not, you know, there's no communion. And it's interesting, you know, I said, yeah, I know him, but no, I don't really know him. I know about him. I may know some facts. I may, I know the sound of his voice. I know what he looks like, but I don't know him because I'm not in a relationship with him. And and in, in many ways, Christianity is about communion with Jesus. It's about having a relationship with him and to commune together to have a relationship you have to spend time together you have to talk to one another and i was reminded of this uh reading paul miller's book on the praying life and he just he makes this statement he says you know you don't experience god you get to know him you submit to him you enjoy him you talk to him he is after all a person uh, it makes sense for another reason that prayer would be at the very center of kingdom life and that is because jesus remember has already said that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit and somebody who is poor in spirit, we said a few weeks ago, is somebody who knows that their problems are beyond them. They know they can't do life on the, their own. They know they need help. And so if you want to know whether or not you're living in poverty of spirit, you can do it by tracking your prayer life. How, how passionately, how frequently, how desperately, how fervently do you pray? That is the degree to which you are poor in spirit because poverty of spirit and prayer runs side by side. The kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit pray, and therefore, prayer is at the center of life in Jesus' kingdom. Now, this is a problem for me, because prayer is hard for me. Uh, I would confess to you, it is my greatest besetting sin. I feel more guilt over my prayerlessness than anything else in my life. And you know what they say, I mean, guilt is very appropriate when you're guilty. And, And I mean, and I feel that. And so I've been thinking about it a little bit this week, about why some of the, you know, some of the reasons why I don't pray. So if you don't indulge me, I just want to say, you know, kind of lead us into uh, the text this morning by just meditating on some of these things. And I, I thought a lot this week about the fact that I don't pray because I don't think I need to. A lot of times I don't pray just because I don't think I need to. I mean, I've got it covered, you know. I can do life on my own. Prayer takes a lot of time. And it feels like you can get a lot more done doing other things. And again, that just means this. It just means that I think my work is far more important than God's work and that I can arrange my life without him. In Acts 6, the apostles appointed certain men in the church to care for the widows and the needy in the church because they wanted, they said, what we have to do is we have to focus our attention on preaching the word of God and prayer. I mean, they understood the centrality of prayer in gospel ministry. Every Monday morning, I make a to-do list for the week because I'm a list freak. And so I think, you know, I've got to write a sermon. I've got to prepare for discipleship groups. I've got to make these phone calls. I've got to respond to these emails. And what's fascinating to me is prayer. I I just, just listen to the prayer. I look back over a year and four months of pastoring this church. Prayer has never once made the list. And I'm ashamed of that. And when I think about a pastor, uh, the tasks that come to mind are things like preaching and teaching and leading and counseling and visiting people that are sick. And praying is 
way, way down at the bottom or the end of the list. Now, why is that? I mean, do you want a pastor who will be there when you're sick? Or do you want a pastor who will pray for you? I, I just, I don't do it because I don't think I need to. But I thought there's a second reason. And, and really, a lot of times I find that I don't pray because I don't think it works. I mean, you really have to battle cynicism. I mean, prayer is going to test your theology. It's going to put your theology to the test. I mean, why pray? I mean, really. Does it really make a difference? I mean, isn't God sovereign? He's got it taken care of. I mean, do I, you know, will it, will it really matter? And then thirdly, there's a, there's a third factor that I think is, is significant. And that's, I, I, sometimes I just don't pray because I don't know what to say. And by that I mean it just feels so removed from everyday life. And maybe, I remember in the church I grew up in, um, it felt like, you know, whenever the guys would get up to pray, they would revert into uh, 17th century English. Hey, how you doing? Hey, good to see you. Nice to meet you. Oh, God, thou art the mightiest of all. I mean, and I just, you know, it just felt so otherworldly. It felt, it felt like, it, you know, you had to learn a different language or... Or there were, you know, certain rules that apply that you could only talk to God about certain things and not certain things. And I've really had to deconstruct that whole way of thinking in my own life to make prayer kind of flow out of the reality of where my life is. And so I did some experiments this week. And one of the funnest ones, last Saturday, we started baseball. And last Saturday was our jamboree. And I was getting Isaac ready for bed. And he said, Daddy, today was not my lucky day. And I said, Why? And he had been really excited after the game, and he rolled down the window of the car and stuck his head out, and his brand-new baseball hat for the year flew off on the overpass on 17, going over, you know, from, from um, Snively Avenue up to Cypress Gardens Boulevard. And so we lost his hat. We turned around and looked for it, couldn't find it. And then his mom, I don't know if you've seen, if you've ever watched Major League Baseball, but because we have a Major League Baseball player in the family, we've got to be like Major League Baseball players. And they wear these, like, these ion necklaces that supposedly do something for your some, your chi or something, I don't know what it is, right, and so we got one of those, and he wanted one so bad, and we bought him one for, um, what did we buy him one for, I can't even remember, Valentine's Day, I think, right, is what it was, and, and so he had had it for a week, and it was just, he, I mean, he wore that thing in the shower, he wore it to bed, it was, I mean, every, and, and um, he took it off in the dugout and lost it, so two things, lost his hat, lost his necklace, and I just went to bed, and he was just so sad. I mean, just so, oh, it wasn't my lucky day, Daddy. And I just, I laid in bed that night, and it was a Saturday night, and I thought, I, I just thought, okay, I'm, I know I'm going to talk about prayer. I'm just going to pray. Father, I, please help me. I'm, I'm going to go looking for these things. Please find me. So last, last Sunday before I came here, I got up really early and drove back on Highway 17, and right there in the gutter was the hat. And then I went to the ball field, had to climb the fence that was locked to get in there. <laughs> Went into the dugout, and there on the floor of the dugout uh, is, is the necklace. And so I got to bring them home. And, I, and I, so I, when he came in, I got to say, Isaac, today's your lucky day. Uh, and, and I just thought, you know, God, God loves that. He loves that. That's real life. Father, my son is disappointed. Would you please help me find these things to increase my faith in his? And I've just had to learn, you know, prayer. Sometimes I don't pray because I don't know what to say, and it feels so divorced, but... But maybe it's that prayer is supposed to flow out of just the normal everyday stuff. And so I just want to talk this morning with you about prayer. And I, I want to be realistic about what we can get done. Uh, 30 minutes cannot teach you to pray. 
But we can, I can try to give you some overarching themes and maybe a vision of what prayer looks like. And so that's my goal this morning. And I need to say, everything that I've learned about prayer, I've learned from my friend, Paul Miller. He's got a book out called The Praying Life. You need to buy it. It's the most amazing um, meditation on prayer that I've ever read. He's coming back in March to do the conference again in, in Lakeland, so be, be aware of that. But uh, So a lot of what I, I'm, I'm talking about really comes from my friendship with him and what he's teaching me. So... Three things about prayer this morning that I want us to just spend a few time, a few minutes looking at together. First, it's theology. Secondly, the condition behind good praying. And thirdly, the hope that you have to anchor to when you pray. So just think of those three things, theology, condition, and hope. The theology behind good praying, the condition behind good praying, and the hope that undergirds or is behind good praying. And let's just walk through those three things together and try to come up with a vision for prayer this morning, okay? Let's talk just first with the theology behind good praying. Okay. Now, in this sermon, Jesus links over and over again faithfulness with a theology of the fatherhood of God. So, for example, in two weeks, we're going to look at this passage in in chapter 6 where he says, do not be anxious. And then, do you remember this? I mean, you say, he says, look at the birds of the air and look at the flowers in the field. Doesn't God provide for their needs and hasn't he clothed them? And you, you are far more valuable to him than they are because you're his children. And so, do you see what he's doing? Jesus is reasoning with his disciples and with us from the truth of God's fatherhood. He's saying you have a father in heaven who who loves you and longs to take care of you. He does the same thing with prayer right here in Matthew 7. Look at those verses again. He says, "If, if you have a son and he asks for bread, will you give him a stone? What What father, if a son asks for fish, would give him a serpent? And look at verse 11. He says, If you then, you who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Again, he's, you see how he's reasoning with us? Every father, every father in the room knows he's completely defenseless against the needs of his kids. Dads, amen. You can't, you know, a good father can't help but give his kids what they need. And, and what Jesus is saying is we're evil. I mean, our hearts are full of selfishness and greed and all kinds of gross stuff. Think about God who's perfect in his love for his children. I mean, Jesus is trying to help us see the disconnect of our lives. Why are we anxious? I mean, why don't we pray? The answer is... Some belief. Jesus says you have little faith. We're anxious because we don't believe the truth of the gospel. We don't really think God is for us. We don't trust his heart. We don't believe he'll come through when we're in a pinch. And in the same way, we don't pray because we don't yet conceive of God as a father in heaven who loves to hear about what we need and longs to give us good things. We live as if we're orphans. We don't believe God's in control. We don't believe he works on our behalf. We think we're all alone. If it's going to be, it's up to me, and I've got to get it done. And Jesus says the starting point in learning to pray is to know that God is for you, that he's goo-goo about you, that he's a father to you who loves you and longs to meet your needs. Now, think about that with me for just a minute. I mean, think about that. I mean, the all-knowing, all-powerful king of heaven and earth The one who spoke and stars leapt into existence. The maker of galaxies and black holes and supernovas and hummingbirds and clownfish. 
I mean, the God who is uncreated, who existed from eternity past and will exist throughout eternity future, he can take nothing, and out of that nothing, he can make things like the Grand Canyon and Mount Kilimanjaro and the Great Barrier Reef. He can make bread, <laughs> literally, rain down from heaven. In Joshua 10, we learn he can make the sun stand still in the sky. Uh, all that's just, I mean, it just blows my mind. Uh, we've been reading Percy Jackson in my home, these, this, these five books about the kind of the Greek gods, if they were actually alive and well in, in modern day. And, you know, you think about the Greek god Zeus. Zeus has unquestioned authority. You know, Athena is wise. Aphrodite's beautiful. Ares is a mighty warrior. You know, Apollo's really cool and he can heal people. But those guys are insignificant nothings compared to the God of the Bible. He has all authority. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He's the most beautiful person in the universe. He is a mighty warrior. But the most amazing thing is Jesus says, he's our father. I mean, he wants us to pray. Look, verse 9, our father in heaven. I mean, can you begin to imagine having a dad like that? Can you comprehend that person with the heart of a father towards you. It's like your greatest dream come true. I mean, it literally, it literally is little orphan Annie walking into the mansion at Daddy Warbuck, you know, Daddy Warbucks's mansion and learning that he wants to adopt her. I mean, holy cow. And that's what makes Jesus' teaching, teaching so shocking is the Jewish people of the day held Yahweh, this big, great God, in such esteem and reverence that they dared not even utter his name. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he starts calling God Abba, Daddy, Papa. And they freak out. The Bible says that if we believe in him, that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and in our hearts by faith, that we will begin to call him Abba too. And so you see, the starting point in learning to pray is to know God is a Father who loves you, and only then, you know, you can only learn that truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, This is what Paul's meditating on in Galatians 4. Your assurance of pardon. It's right there in your worship folder. He says there that God sent his son into the world, born under law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might be adopted as sons. Now here's what that means. Paul's trying to show us that as long as you relate to God based upon your performance, you'll never be sure of his love. And if you aren't sure of his love, you won't pray. He says, if you think you have to obey the law in order to earn God's love, if you think, you know, if you think it's, a, it's a matter of what you do, you'll live like a slave and not a son. You'll be driven or you'll be cowardly, radically insecure, defensive, self-reliant, critical of others and all of those things. Because, because what's driving all of that is you won't know where you stand with him. And no matter how hard you try, there will always be room for improvement, right? There will always be sin you can't seem to overcome. But you see, what happens is, is you make the transition from a slave to a son when you see that the Father's acceptance and love is not gained through your performance, but through Jesus' performance in your place. Paul says, born under law to redeem those under the law. That means this. That means that Jesus came to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we should have died. We've been memorizing Philippians 2 together as a church, Right? And there Paul says that Jesus, who was God, became nothing and took on the nature of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And on the cross, 
Jesus cried to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on the cross, Jesus lost his sonship so that we could gain ours. You see, you're a son. You're a son because of what Jesus has done, not because of anything you have done. And that means if you're trusting in him and not your own moral record, you can be completely secure in the Father's love. And what we learn from the gospel is that God doesn't answer our prayers because we've been good. God doesn't answer our prayers because we say the right things. That's a pagan approach to prayer, babbling on and on. He answers our prayers for Jesus' sake alone, which is why Jesus says, when you pray, pray in my name. Pray for my sake. You see, there's only one way to to gain access to the Father, and that is to come through the work of Jesus. So Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Why? Because you have a Father in heaven who loves you and his heart towards you is to bless you and provide for you and give you good things. That's the theology undergirding prayer. But secondly, there's a condition. So the, good, the, the theology behind good praying is our Father in heaven, that we come to know his love for us and we grow in our faith in the gospel. So if that's con- true then, then that means there's a certain condition, a certain shape of circumstances that leads to good praying. You know, so get this metaphor in your mind. Prayer is like a little child coming to his father and asking his father to do for him what he cannot do for himself. That's prayer. Uh, Now, here's the part that I'm really nervous about. Because, see, we have to confront something that really erodes discipleship and really prayer in particular. And that is just this, that a lot of times we assume that because God is our Father who loves us, that means, we we translate that to mean this, that, that He is obligated to serve our selfish agendas and come through on every request on our timetable. I mean, we assume God's job is to keep us healthy and strong and carefree. And here's the craziest thing, is that a lot of times we use, quote-unquote, good circumstances to be the thermometer of our faith in him. You know, as long as he's providing for us and everything's going the way we think it should, then, hey, it's good. But when things get hard, we start to suffer a little bit. We start to doubt. We question his heart. We accuse him of not being good. Now, so here's what Jesus Jesus is trying to to get us to see how the Father works in our lives. You know, look at verses 7 through 11 of Matthew 7, and Jesus says, of course, of course, no good father, if his son asks for a fish, would give him a serpent. But let me ask a question. What if he asks for a serpent? I mean, does a good father grant a request that puts his child in danger? Of course not. And the father in heaven won't do that either. The reality is we ask him for all kinds of things, for more money and nicer houses and newer cars. We, we ask him to bless our businesses and to keep us healthy. You know, we ask him for all of these things. We pray our kids would be safe and everything would be nice and comfortable and easy and manageable. And of course, those things are good and our Abba in heaven longs to do those good things to us. But the reality is is that in some cases, asking him for these things can be like asking for a serpent because in giving them to us, he would be nurturing in us a a love for worldly things, self-reliance, and narcissism. In other words... Too often we pray for the life circumstances that will lead us away from faith and into self-reliance and godlessness. Say that again, Jonathan says. I mean, often we pray. We pray for the life circumstances that lead us away from faith toward godlessness. And he won't give us those things. You've got to become like a little child, he says, to enter the kingdom. And so, here's what I want to say to you. Okay? 
Jesus is committed to making you helpless. He's going to thwart you. He's going to make you helpless against the onslaught of life. He's going to bring what we call low-level suffering into your life. And sometimes he may even allow the really big, scary stuff to come in too. And it doesn't mean he's not in control. Please hear me. It doesn't mean he's not good. Just the opposite. He's doing you good. He's saving you. He's teaching you the way of the kingdom. I mean, what's implied in asking and seeking and knocking? Need. You need something. There's something that somebody else has that you need, and so you ask them to give it to you. You ask them for it. And Jesus goes so far in verse 11 of chapter 6, he says, he teaches us to pray, give us our daily bread. I mean, in Jesus' day, most day laborers were paid, they weren't paid weekly or monthly, they were paid on a daily basis, so they didn't live paycheck to paycheck. They literally lived day to day. They were completely dependent upon God's provision on a daily basis, and it's that heart attitude of childlike dependence upon God for everything that Jesus says is at the core of what it means to live as a child of God. I mean, where do you have to pray for daily bread? And if you don't, if you don't, like me, because I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, thank God for four children. That's a fodder for a lot of praying. You know? But if you don't, if you have enough money, if you're strong enough and wise enough on your own, you don't know, do you know the danger you're in? I mean, if life is hard and you feel weak, or you're overwhelmed, right, or you're just exhausted or helpless, can I, can I befriend you for a minute? Stop thinking you're doing something wrong. Stop thinking God's turned away from you. He's not. He's working in your life. He's committed to making you weak because it's only when you're weak that he can be strong for you. I meditated a lot on, on Paul's praying in 2 Corinthians 12. If you remember the passage, you said, I prayed three times that the Lord would remove the thorn in my flesh from me. And what was God's answer? No. No, my grace is sufficient. I mean, P- Paul had to meditate on the fact that God was conspiring against him to make him weak. And so I emailed a friend of mine who teaches uh, a Bible study in town uh, but she just really, she really suffers with headaches and really gets in the way. And I just said, you know, I've prayed for you and I've prayed that your God would take away your headaches. And I've been really discouraged because that God's not working in that. And I just said, you know, I have to just sit here and say, I'm going to continue to pray uh, that God would take away those headaches. But maybe the headaches are God's way of keeping you weak. And maybe that's why there's an anointing on your ministry. I mean, I had a friend... Neil Salzman, who, who counsels out of our office this week, sat at my doorway and he said, there's no, there's no place in my life where, I, where it, it's beyond my abilities to, to manage. I mean, I'm not weak anywhere. What Jesus is teaching us is that you'll never pray until you're first helpless, until life just runs you over. And you have no other choice but to cry out to God. Now, why does it have to work this way? I mean, why? Why does it really have to work this way? And the reason is, is that prayer is meant to mirror the gospel. And remember, the gospel is I, I, we have nothing. We have no way of saving ourselves. We have nothing to contribute. God must come and do 100% of the work. We're helpless, powerless, defenseless. We're completely at his mercy. The truth of the gospel is, is I have nothing. I do nothing. I earn nothing. Salvation is his work from beginning to end. 
the only way you can become a Christian is to admit this, to confess you've sinned, that you've been wrong, that you've screwed up, and that you're powerless to save yourself. We've said before, the only thing you need is nothing. And if that's the way you become a Christian, then the way you grow, the way you progress in your faith, the way you cultivate your relationship with God in Jesus is to experience this over and over and over again. Prayer mirrors the gospel. Saving faith comes to you when you have nothing and you turn to Jesus and you ask for him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's the movement of prayer too. Prayer starts with poverty of spirit, with knowing your problems are beyond you. And so you turn to Jesus over and over again and ask him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Now, so helplessness is the condition behind good praying. But the reality is, is that instead of being helpless, what happens is, is we lose the gospel, and instead of living in helplessness, we move off of it into one of two areas. And I just want to, I'm going I'm to have an illustration for you in just a minute to show you this, but I just want I want you to see how this works. Either, instead of living helpless, either you'll move off into despair, you know, because things are hard, you'll lose heart, you'll quit, you'll begin to accuse God, you'll become convinced you're doing something wrong and that he's punished punishing you or the other side is so on one side of helplessness is despair on the other side is you become demanding you become determined you can get willful you can decide that you're going to work it out on your own you don't need god you know you can take matters into your own hands and you can come up with a solution you know on your own and what's true of both despair and being determined is that either way we find ourselves if we find ourselves there we've lost any sense of god the father's heart in his power, in his authority, and we've just become full of ourselves. And prayer's the opposite. Prayer's despairing of yourself and trusting in God. And so I want to do a diagnostic with you this morning. Let's do a diagnostic. Can I just ask you about praying for your kids? And I realize not everybody in the room has kids, but most of us do. And so if you don't, then think about a relationship where this applies. But Paul Miller, in his book, again, makes this passing statement that just undid me. He said, just again, it wasn't really a point he was making, he just said it. He said, I've done my best parenting through prayer. Can I ask you, parents, does your parenting strategy include prayer? Do you do your best parenting in prayer? Do you see prayer as the work of parenting? And here's how you know if you've moved off the gospel in your parenting, you know, you move in either one of two directions. You either begin to despair or you become, you just start to become willful. You take matters into your own hands. You come up with a better plan. And I know, I know when we've gotten there at my house because we start changing the schedule or rearranging the furniture. Right? And that's what's going to happen. There's a third option, however, and this is what I want to finish on. If you give me about three more minutes, hopefully we'll be done. There's a third option. You don't have to despair and you don't have to become determined. You can hope. You can find hope. And really what Jesus is calling us to is to find hope. And so, Rob, do we have my slides ready up there? Here we go. Look at that. Often we struggle. What we struggle with in our lives and in prayer in particular is we struggle with the, the gap between hope. You see the line on top of that chart. That line up there represents hope. It represents the promises of God. It represents all that God promises to do for us, all that the Scripture speaks about when it talks about our lives. And what happens is is we struggle with the gap between what we read to be true of the Scripture of what we see God promising to do in us and the stark reality of our lives. 
And there's often a huge gap between those two things, and it's a desert place that we're called to live out of. And for me, you know, it's, you know, I, I started asking people this week, but I'm talking about areas like, for me, I read in the scripture, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then I think, you know, the church is full of marriages that are struggling and people that are just trying to figure out how to get from day to day. How in the world are we going to charge hell? I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, we're getting run over. You know, or I think, I, I read, you know, that God will give us a new heart and then I look into my own life and see sin and I just, or my, the sin in my children's hearts and, you know, I just think, oh gosh, how do I make sense of all that God promises to do in light of the reality of what I experience? Now, what I want you to see is when you move into despair, here's what happens. Rob, will you go to the next slide? When you move into despair, what you do is you lose sight of the promises of God, you bring down any sense of hope, and you just become cynical. You live in unbelief. In other words, the power of sin or the hardship of your circumstances become more defining than God's power to save. So you just give up. You shut down. You live in discouragement and fear. And so Paul Miller says, he says, you realize that you're not going to change the situation no matter what you do. It hurts to hope in the face of continued failure, so you stop hurting by giving up. On hope. But then the second, if it's, not, if it's not cynicism and despair, then the other temptation is to move into determinism, determination or moralism. And here's what you do in that, is you just become, you become a moralist. You become determined. You decide you're going to fix it no matter what it takes. And so you see, you try to push the reality up through your own effort. You begin to work harder. You begin to work longer. You begin different strategies. And Paul Miller says again, by the sheer force of your will, you're going to make it happen. And prayer won't work. Prayer doesn't work in those two things. Prayer only works. Go to the next one. One more, Rob. Prayer only works right there in the middle between the hope and the reality when you live in the desert. Because you see, in prayer, we're content to live in the gap, to look to the promises of God in defiance of the reality of our circumstances and to put our hope in Him. Let me say that again. Prayer, here's when prayer happens. Prayer happens when you are content to live in the desert, to look to the promises of God in defiance, in defiance of your present circumstances or the reality of your circumstances and to put your hope in Him. That's how prayer works. And this is what living in the kingdom of God feels like, right there. That's what living in the kingdom of God feels like. Because there's an already and a not yet component to the kingdom. Remember, eternal life, we've been talking about this, eternal life refers to the life of the future that is pushing back toward the present. It's the life of the age to come that is brought forward so that we can live in the present world out of the power of that age. We pray in the context of a coming kingdom. Remember, this sermon is about the kingdom of God. And this is where the hope comes from. If you know the Lord's Prayer, you know that when we recite it in church together, it finishes with, Thine is the kingdom and the power, right? And the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you look, you'll notice it's not there in Matthew. And that's because it comes from a textual variant. There's some manuscripts of Matthew that we have that include that phrase. But what Matthew wants us to see, what Jesus is trying to teach us is, is that the only way to pray is to see your prayers in the unfolding drama of what God is doing in bringing his kingdom to earth. And yet, if you're despairing, if you're despairing, if you're not prayerful but you're despairing this morning, it's because you've forgotten that the kingdom is already here. It's here. Eternal life is now. It has come and you can enter it through repentance and faith. Eternal life's not something you have to wait for. 
There's no sin Jesus can't forgive. There's no heart he cannot conquer. There's no circumstance he can't change. He has defeated the enemy. He's won a victory that is already ours. You believe that? So you can't despair. But if you, if you find you just become determined that that's your strategy, then what happens there is you've forgotten the kingdom is not yet. We're still waiting for Jesus to come back. And no matter how hard you work, sin still remains. And it will be with us. No matter how much we progress in our faith, there will always be a desert we have to walk through that requires faith. We are not home yet. And so we have to pray. You see that? We have to pray. Uh, we want to be a church that prays. We want to be a church that understands the work that we're called to is the work of prayer. Uh, and so it's why it, we joke. I, I, I was back in the back a couple weeks ago and somebody walked in from the kids, uh, to, dropping their kids off and Jonathan's up here and they said, he's still praying? Good grief. It's awesome. If we pray uncomfortably long in the service, it's on purpose because we believe it's the work we've got to do. We've got to pray. We pray on Sunday mornings before our worship service in the conference room at 8.45. We need you to come and join us because, again, we want to be a church that prays. We want to pray in community groups and and vision dinners and in meetings together. We want prayer to be the work uh, of what we understand our, our, you know, we want it to be the center of what we understand our work to be. And on every fourth Sunday at 5 o'clock, which, by the way, today is the fourth Sunday, so tonight we'll be meeting in the fellowship hall, and for an hour from 5 to 6, we'll be praying. We call it corporate prayer. I mean, you know, if we're going to live as Jesus' disciples, if we're going to be a city on a hill, if we're going to be salt and light, if we're going to be the poor in spirit, those who enter into the kingdom of God, then we're going to have to be people that pray. So come and pray with us. Um, And let's do this. Let's ask God. Let's pray that God would make us a people of prayer. And so would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, you are great God and King of the universe. You are, you are the one who thought up clownfish and hummingbirds. I mean, you are the one who, who calls forth the sun over the horizon every morning. And yet you're our Father who loves us and who longs to bless us and to do good to us. And we just pray that you would um, come in these moments and drive home to us the reality of your, your love, the reality of your care, that we're not orphans, we've not been left alone, that we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And therefore, whether it be a road that is pleasant and full of joy, or whether it be a road that is marked with suffering, we can walk the road and we can lift our hands and we can say, Blessed be your name. You are the God who gives and takes away. But whether you give or whether you take away, you are our Father. Help us to believe that this morning. And may it produce a willingness to live in the desert between hope and reality, to call out to you in prayer, developing us the habit of prayer, and work through our prayers to bring much glory to yourself, to change our city. But start with us. Change us. And begin that work now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. If there's any doubt that remains in you about your Father's heart towards you, then hear the words of the benediction. 
and hear him in these words speaking over you his love his delight his his commitment to going with you and turning his face towards you no matter what set of circumstances you might be going into and so if your faith is in Jesus Christ then receive these words as the promise of the father's love may the lord bless you and keep you may the lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you may the lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore amen go in his peace